Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode, which is a look at the screenplay and development of the 2018 film Alpha. You may already know that this film was set in the late Stone Age, or the Paleolithic period, when early humans were expanding into Europe as the extreme weather of the Ice Age retreated. The premise is straightforward. A young hunter is separated from his tribe, and has to journey through the wilderness to find his way home. Along the way, he is helped by a wolf, the titular Alpha. Now, one of the things I found so fascinating about this project was that the filmmakers decided to record the dialogue in a reconstructed language that might approximate the sound of the ancestor languages of Europe today. Any of you who are regular listeners may know about my love of languages, something I think is quite common among writers. After all, we deal with words. So this week, I wanted to try something a little bit different and look at not just the screenplay itself, but also the work that goes into crafting that dialogue. If you heard my introduction to the last episode, you'll know that a big part of what I've been trying to bring back into the 21st rewrite right now is to present fascinating points of view and insightful opinions through the guests featured on the show. This week, I was extremely fortunate to have both the screenwriter Dan Wiedenhout and the language consultant Christine Schreier join me for this podcast, and I know you are really going to enjoy this episode and hearing what they have to say about Alpha. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined today by two very special guests. I have Dan Wiedenhaupt, who is the original screenwriter of the movie Alpha, and also Christine Schreier, who was the linguistic consultant on the film and helped develop the language that is spoken in the movie. So just to begin with, let's introduce ourselves. Dan, how did you first get involved in screenwriting yourself and what had been the trajectory of your career prior to this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on. Always nice when someone wants to hear me talk other than myself. <laughs> you know, I moved out to Los Angeles right after graduating from college to work in film. You know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And when you grow up in a place like that isn't Los Angeles, you don't really have a sense of how movies are even made. To be honest, I don't even think I understood what a screenwriter did, let alone that it was a viable career option for me. So I moved to Los Angeles to work in film production and learn how films were made. And I did that for about four and a half years. During that time, I was introduced to Albert Hughes. And, um, you know, Albert is this incredible director who's had a, a very long and successful career. And though I, I had always enjoyed writing I sort of, the more I got to know the industry, the more I thought, okay, you know, I, I can't wait to write a screenplay, but I figured, you know, I also, I, I liked paying rent and uh, I liked putting food on my table. So my plan, my initial trajectory was I'm going to learn to be a great producer. I was working at Atlas Entertainment, which is a great production company run by Charles Robin, who made movies like The Dark Knight and American Hustle. I figured, okay, I'm going to learn to be a great producer. And then maybe, you know, in 20 or 30 years, I'll produce a movie that I wrote. Like that was the plan I had. But, you know, as the saying goes, man plans and God laughs. And so Albert and I were connected and I had helped him edit a screenplay that he was working on. And it's actually Albert Hughes 
who was the first person to say to me, hold on a second, like, you're a writer, you need to write me a movie. And he had this kernel of an idea that he had been researching for a long time. And that kernel ended up becoming Alpha. Yeah, I I do feel that a conversation I keep having over and over on the podcast is that there's there is a kind of misconception out there that a writer is kind of born a writer and kind of comes into the world fully formed writing masterpieces mm. and actually there's just so much work that goes on in the background and so many different things that everyone is trying along the way and often one thing that really is a huge impact on someone's writing career is having someone who enjoys their work and believes in them and and kind of helps encourage them so it's great to hear that in your case it was the director of the film that you actually wrote as well absolutely because i can imagine that created a great rapport between the the two of you it, it was a great rapport but also it was truly like my ultimate master class right it's not as if albert gave me this idea and then i went off and i came back with the perfect screenplay and by the way i would also even the final version isn't a perfect screenplay by any means but he every step of the way was very much my mentor and professor of writing. And the, the way it, it worked was Albert was living in Prague at the time. And I would, you know, I had a day job. I was a creative executive at a production company, but on my nights and my weekends, I would write. And then I would email Albert my pages. And then a, a day or two later, we would Skype. And, um, you know, he'd give me his thoughts and his input and his edits and his ideas and all of it. And, and so we really, you know, it was a long process. You know, it makes me think one of the things I always try to impart to people, to your point about sort of a writer appearing fully formed, neither does a screenplay, you know, writing is rewriting, you know, you've never read anybody's first draft ever. And it's so true, you know, as I was preparing for our conversation, I opened up my my folder with all the drafts <laughs> of scripts that we had done for this. And it is voluminous. You know, I mean, there, I, I can't even tell you how many different versions we went through before getting to where we needed to be. And that is why I named my podcast The 21st Rewrite, because there is a pun hidden in there, which is that I focus entirely on screenplays from this century, the 21st century, but also the sheer amount right. of times that a writer might rewrite a screenplay. 21, I think, uh, sounds about appropriate before it's... <laughs> ready for you to show to someone else. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds right to me. All right. And just moving over to Christine here as well. Could you tell us a little bit about your own background and how you first got involved in? I'm not sure what the best word to use would be. Would it be designing languages for films, creating languages? Or how, how would you, you phrase that? I would probably say language creation. So how did I get involved in language creation? First of all, thank you for having us on the podcast today. And my day job is a professor. So I am a linguistic anthropologist at UBC's Okanagan campus. And I call myself a language fangirl. I'm fascinated with anything to do with language and how humans use language. So I teach classes where I teach people about anthropology and linguistics. And ever since I came to UBC, 
I've been making my students do an assignment where they create a language over the course of the semester. So when they learn about the sounds of language, then they get to pick sounds for a language. And then when they learn about how words are put together, then they make their own words, things like that. And so I arrived at UBC Okanagan in about 2008. And then a little movie called Avatar came out mm -hmm. in December of 2009. And it was the second year of my teaching. And so I was able to point at Avatar and the language of Navi and say, look, there are people doing this. It's not just you guys in my class. <laughs> people are making languages. And then shortly after that, a whole bunch of media came out about the numbers of people learning Navi. There was some ridiculous estimate that 10,000 people in Australia were learning Navi. And I just thought, how is this possible? So I did a survey of an online survey with Navi speakers from around the world. I had almost 300 individuals reply within six weeks in seven different languages because the Navi community very much helped me translate my English survey into Hungarian and Italian and Russian and German and Navi, actually. And so when I published the results of the survey, UBC did a media release and they sent it to various media agencies around Canada. And it got picked up in a newspaper in Canada, one of the biggest ones called the Globe and Mail. And the story was, there was a picture of uh, the Navi people on the front cover and then the inside cover of the newspaper had the story about my work with them. And Alex McDowell, a production designer, uh, who was working on Man of Steel at the time, saw this. He was flying from Chicago via Toronto to Vancouver, where they were going to be shooting the scenes of Man of Steel that took place on Krypton. And he realized as he was flying, ah, we're filming on an alien planet and we don't have an alien language. And this was a big plot point to the movie because of course Superman has an S on his chest and why does an alien being have an S on his chest? So they reimagined what the S was. Mm. And so when he landed in Vancouver, he had a production assistant reach out to me. And so the first film that I worked on was Man of Steel. And I developed the Kryptonian language for Man of Steel, although it wasn't spoken in the film. I worked with the art department. So I worked with a graphic designer named Kirsten Franson. And so she developed the writing system based on the S symbol and many other things. And that's how I got involved in working on movies. And it's such a funny small world because I knew of that work. I was working at Atlas at the time that we were making Man of Steel. Right. And yeah, and it's just the, the business is so funny and small in that way that we've already overlapped like that before. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any other films you worked on in between Man of Steel and uh, Alpha? So, no. The, actually, the reason I got to Alpha was because it's all tied back to Avatar. So I became friends with Paul Fromer, who is the creator of Navi from Avatar. Avatar 2 and 3 have been in production for many years now, and they originally reached out to Paul Fromer, who was the creator and he was so busy working on Avatar 2 and 3 that he directed them to me and he also we were also making a documentary film about people who make languages at the time and he thought with my anthropological background knowing what the story of Alpha was and the fact they were reaching out to the British Museum um, to make the world more accurate then he directed them to me because as an anthropologist I know more about the early history of humans than, say, a random linguist who might not have had that particular training. So it worked out really well in the end. In the meantime, when I was working on Alpha, we were already through 
uh, most of the shooting, I think, and most, or at least the development of the language. And another film reached out to me, and that was Power Rangers, which came out in 2017. So I actually worked on the Power Ranger language of Altarian and the alpha language of what I call Bayama at the same time. So I kept having to shift my brain from Altarian to Bayama and back again. Oh, wow. So they were kind of shooting at the same time. And then uh, Power Rangers came out ahead of Alpha. Yeah, and anyone who's ever done a, uh, a joint language course at university will know how tough it is to try and juggle two languages and right. not get them mixed up when you're trying to learn both at the same yeah. time. So in terms of creating two at the same yeah. time, you must have had to keep your notes very separate and, and stay very organized. Yes. Uh, yes, <laughs> it was complex, um, but it, it did work out in the end. Both directors were really great. Albert uh, Hughes, as Dan has already mentioned, and then Dean Israelite. They had very distinct feedback and ideas of what they wanted. And I did ask Andrew Rona, the producer from Alpha, is it okay if I work on this other film? Like, I'm happy to say no. And he said, as long as it doesn't sound like our language, we're good. Go ahead. <laughs> One of the great things about you being an academic and a professor is that you probably find it a bit easier than the average person of also kind of simplifying and explaining clearly the the work you do. So I look forward to getting into some of the details of how you actually develop the language and some of the things that we can look out for next time we watch the film. Yes. So just jumping back to Dan now, what was the original idea that Albert Hughes suggested to you? What was this this kernel from which the, the rest of the story originated? So a lot of times with scripts, the stories, they begin with a theme. And, and the first thing that he said to me is that he wants to tell a story about loneliness. And Albert had read about and studied this culture called the Salutrians, which was this tribe of Cro-Magnon who were basically at in the discoveries were found that you know, they were the first to really uh, create art. There were was dye in their hair. There were instruments found, you know, all these very sort of these things that sort of went just a step beyond pure survival and also evidence that they were the first culture to domesticate wolves into dogs. And so he wanted to tell a, a survival story set in that world. And to sort of tell the, the fable or creation story of the first domesticated dog. And, and there were more details to it, of course. You know, Albert had been, had been researching and studying this for a very long time before he brought it to me. You know, but the, the general idea was that there was a member of this tribe that was separated during a hunt and had to find their way back home with the help of this wolf who over the course of the movie would be tamed and at least attempted to be domesticated. So that's sort of the, the, the origin of the idea and, and very much the broad strokes of, you know, obviously a lot of this is what the movie was, but within that there was so much that, that developed and, and evolved over, over time. So how did you begin in terms of research? Did you start looking at the historical period and the Salutrians? Or did you start with, for example, just trying to carve out a bit of the story at the same time with the plan of updating it as you discovered more things? 
So the two kind of go hand in hand. And I've always found and continue to find that the more research you do, that's where the great ideas come from, rather than trying to squeeze them in the other way around. So for example, you know, when you read, we read about sort of the, the, the buffalo hunts of the Great Plains and the ways in which early tribes in Europe at the time would sort of drive these giant beasts off of cliffs. It's like, oh, that's an amazing set piece, right? As opposed to the other way around, you know? So you get these sort of moments of inspiration from these, these true moments, these discoveries. So it, a lot of it for me began, Albert sort of gave me a, a, a syllabus, right? There were a number of books of, of prehistory and early European modern humans, as well as excerpts from the book Sapiens, excerpts from other studies that he had read. He also introduced me to a number of people that we tracked down. One was Dr. Jill Cook at the British Museum, somebody that Albert actually went out and interviewed and recorded. So Dr. Jill Cook at the British Museum had a lot of insight into the Salutrians and the culture. We also spoke to a man named Sean Ellis, who spends a lot of time living with wolves. So we also wanted to really try and understand as best we could the behavior of wolves in packs in the wilderness, how they might assimilate to a man, how you know, those interactions would go. Because obviously, that's such a big part of the story. And Albert was very insistent and, and passionate about making this as true as possible. Obviously, we, ha- we can't know what really happened, but we wanted to make sure we weren't doing anything that stepped too far out of bounds. And it was very funny at times. You know, we, we got some criticism from people on Twitter or Reddit or whatever saying, oh, you know, classic Hollywood, these Cro-Magnons, you know, they had, they looked like they were wearing clothes out of a department store. And, you know, these people had really intricate needles and were sewing and were creating fantastic pieces of clothing. So it, it's funny how sometimes people tell on themselves in terms of, you know, how little credit they give these early cultures for how advanced they really were. That's fascinating. I'm I'm actually going to put up a bit of a, a reading list on the uh, the show's Instagram, just in terms of some of the books that I think are worth investigating as well, if, if you're interested in the prehistorical period. You mentioned Sapiens, which is obviously one of the monumental works of the last couple of decades, as Yuval Noah Harari, uh, an Israeli scientist who has written this full history of the human race called Sapiens and is very popular, a big bestseller. There's also one called The Prehistory of the Mind by Stephen Mithen, which I found really fascinating as well, which again explores some of the concepts you're talking about in terms of just how similar, this is only 20,000 years ago we're talking about, or 15,000 years ago, humanity doesn't evolve at that speed. These are modern humans in every sense of the word. Right. The technology might not be there and the development of mass societies and agrarian cultures might not be there, but they certainly have minds that are similar or exactly the same in a way to humans that live today. And I guess that also makes it a compelling thing when you're writing a story about these characters because they can be relatable. They are just like us in a sense. They are humans just from another culture. Absolutely. There's also a great book by Brian Fagan called Cro-Magnon, 
which was a big a big influence for us as well in terms of research. As an anthropologist, I'm I'm nodding along to all you're saying, yeah. William. Absolutely. That's what we teach our students. <laughs> Excellent. So in terms of the writing as well, I mean, as you mentioned, this is uh, one of the first screenplays you've written. Were there any particular writers who or filmmakers who influenced you? Did you seek out any particular books on screenwriting just in terms of figuring out structure? What, what kind of education did you do in terms of uh, learning about screenwriting itself? So uh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is the short answer. You know, I think the, the single greatest way of learning how to write is to read screenplays, period. There is no formula. People will try to capitalize and make a lot of money on telling you that they know the secret sauce or the formula to writing the screenplay. Are there rhythms and are there structures to storytelling? Absolutely. We all know them. It's There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, right? Beyond that, I, I won't disparage any books by name, but what I can say is the great lesson I learned was in the first four years of working in the industry, two years as an assistant, two and a half years as a creative executive, I read at least one script every single day. And in reading great scripts and bad scripts, that's where I learned how to write, period. Because that is how you absorb, you know, you, you I mean, there's, there's amazing screenplays out there by unknown writers and there are terrible screenplays out there by people who have won oscars you know it, it, it it's it runs the gamut and so the greatest influence on me in learning how to write was just constantly reading and figuring out what works what doesn't work what do i want to see more of um what resonates with me and from there i sort of had to figure it out yeah that's a really good point one of the so for each episode of the podcast, uh, I focus on one specific screenplay. And just to list a couple of the ones that I've done recently that are historical, aside from Alpha, I've covered Master and Commander, mm -hmm. The Far Side of the World, which was written by John Colley. And I looked at that with another podcaster called Everett Rummage, who hosts the Age of Napoleon podcast. And I also looked at Gladiator with an educator, Stuart Voitilla from... San Diego State University. Two of the greats right there, those two movies. Yes, and these are all historical films. Master and Commander is written, the actual screenplay, John Colley essentially wrote it in the form of English that would be used in the early 1800s during the Napoleonic Wars. Wow. Gladiator, an American screenplay, is completely in modern English and, of course, has a couple of sections in the film where there's a, a little bit of ancient German being used in one of the early battle sequences, but it's completely in modern English. And then you look at Alpha, and it's you obviously wrote it in English, but then have the translation into the language on the same page as well for the actors to read. So there's all these different ways you can go about it, and there's no right or wrong way. It's what works for your specific project. Yeah. I mean, there's another and a way of, of linking to Dr. Schreier here. <laughs> Most people will tell you that a screenplay needs dialogue. And one small piece of, of, of intel here is when Albert and I set out creating this, there was actually no dialogue in the script at all. We 
had written a little note to the reader at the front, basically saying, you know, we wanted to create the most truly universal uh, film experience and wherein nothing could get lost in translation. So we wanted to have a movie in which there was no dialogue. And then ultimately, as you know, time went on, we we added dialogue and thank goodness that we did so that, you know, we could have Dr. Schreier create this incredible language. Um, <laughs> but And that's, that's a good point because dialogue itself is actually a concept that didn't entirely exist in the earliest days of filmmaking. And there's still classics that hold up today. Buster Keaton's films, Charlie Chaplin, and even some of the early works by Hitchcock right. have absolutely no dialogue. They have just, your title cards just to have a little bit of text on screen to explain maybe a key idea, but everything is con conveyed visually for the first 20 years of film. So by no means do we need dialogue to tell a story. And I th you know, even the artist more recently proved that even in the 21st century, you can tell a story with no dialogue at all. Yes, absolutely. That's interesting that you say that, Dan, because when Andrew Rona reached out to me, he said, yeah, there's very little, little dialogue. It won't be a very big project. And then as we went on, it grew and it grew and it grew, right? So it's always interesting to hear the backstory of that. Oh, yeah. When you see it on the page versus when you see it on screen, you go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we probably should have someone saying something here, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> Well, and the cool thing about Alpha that I think is really cool that I've never heard anyone else doing before is that there's also, the, they did the sound editing for the characters in the back. And originally when they shot it, they weren't speaking anything. They were just silent, but then they oh, realized yeah. they need that background noise. So it, there's actually a second script that was written. I, I don't know if that was Dan who wrote that, but it's the chatter from the back that was then filmed in the language. So for me, I have the main lines like Tao and Keda and all the things they're saying. And then I had to write people in the back going, let me carry that. And I feel scared. And all of these other things that were then recorded by voice actors in Vancouver. Oh, that's um, and then there was like shaman chanting in the background. So we did all of that, which in the, in this language, which I don't think other films that put in invented languages do so it was a really cool piece for the invented language world anyway oh that's incredible i actually i didn't know about that but that's amazing yeah yeah so if you hear the background chatter it's not english it's not anything else it's all in bayama it's all in the language and at what point did the decision come about dan that there was going to be a language to to add to the authenticity or the just the feel the cohesiveness of the world so, I mean, right from the beginning, even though we hadn't written dialogue into the script, we knew that, first of all, it was a non-starter. No one was going to be speaking English, right? And we also knew we, did, we couldn't have it being people grunting or something. You know, we, we, we were very, very clear that we knew people were going to be speaking in a native language. But I think our initial idea may have been to not even subtitle that language. Yeah, actually, I found the, the old note to reader. What we had written was, while no explicit dialogue is written in the script, our characters will be speaking to each other in native tongue without any accompanying subtitles. Everything within these pages has been influenced by historical finds and substantiated theories, and our hope is to treat the language realistically while not taking the audience out of the story. 
Their intentions and meaning behind the words will be clear enough from their actions, as this film is meant to be understood by all cultures around the world without anyone being at any greater advantage. For this is a film about humanity, survival, and what remains when everything we know is stripped away. So that was what accompanied the script way back. And just, you know, the, the filmmaking is a collaborative process, of course. And as we continue to develop the script and get closer and closer to shooting, we wanted to make sure that there were certain moments, you know, especially as the father-son relationship developed, for example, that was a big part of it would be really great to know what they're saying to one another and gave us the opportunity to really understand the characters more. Yeah, that that is a fascinatingly bold statement to include in the screenplay. And maybe even now in retrospect feels it's a perfect intention to set out with, but one of the strong benefits of film is that you can do this simultaneous translation in a way, for example, making a podcast, there, there's always a sense that this will be limited to the English-speaking world. There's no way to fully translate a podcast. I can translate a transcript of it, right. but short of re-recording everything in another language, it's not possible to do an audio format that can be followed on by, uh, by someone who doesn't speak English. Whereas with film, there's just this simple technique, which is the subtitle, which has obviously, after dialogue and sound was added to films in the 30s, it opened from what was, I suppose, a level playing field where the German films were on par with the American films and any kind of culture was all trying to communicate non-verbally and you could simply replace title cards. We have also been able to watch Japanese cinema, South Korean cinema, any culture, no matter how difficult it would be to learn that language simply by the inclusion of subtitles. So this has also allowed us to watch films like Apocalypto, for example, which was in Mayan and right. all kinds of things like this. It's, it's allowed all these interesting experiments in using languages that are no longer spoken today. One of the things that I really appreciate about it, the, the use of this language, besides the fact I created it and it's fun, <laughs> um, is that it's very accessible too. Like there's so much you see from the deaf community demands for subtitles and there are films today that come out still and they don't have that option for the deaf community and I just this was one that was accessible to whoever uh, and I really appreciated that as well and it was fun to see when it was released in other countries the reception like the reception in India was huge yep. I, I got so many tweets at that time so yeah it was really interesting to see that I, I, I love that and, and what I love about it is we accomplished our goal, but in a different way, mm -hmm. right? By everyone having to read subtitles, including Americans yes. and, and the Brits and, and the rest of the English speaking world, we did level that playing field, right? The whole world had to, had to look at subtitles to understand. I'm going to ask one more question to Dan on writing, I think, and then we'll talk a bit more about language again. I did want to ask you, Dan, about just how long did the overall writing process take between the first draft and the shooting script a great question a very good question uh, a long time <laughs> um, the first sort of bit of work i have saved on it is from may of 2013 which was the first sort of um attempts at pages on it so we would have begun work on this the spring of 2013 we would have sold it to studio eight 
in the fall of 2014. So about a year and a half of work on it just internally. Then we sold it and then we developed it for about another year. And then I believe we began shooting in February of 2016. Yep. Right. So just shy and and we were continuing to work on it up until we began shooting. So all in just shy of three years of work on that script. And did it always have these these primary elements, Alpha, the wolf, Kada, and and his father, Tao? Were, were they always kind of constants? Well, you know, the interest... Okay, so this is an interesting... Here's, here's some behind-the-curtain stuff, I guess. Initially, it was actually the father who went on this journey, not the boy. Hmm. And, oh, that's interesting. And what had happened... So this is this is why sometimes the answer, I mean, why development can sometimes be really great. We had actually, in the early drafts, the father falls off this cliff and loses his memory, has like a full amnesia, and he is rendered useless out in the wild. And over the course of surviving, slowly regains his memory and, you know, starts putting the pieces back together. And... During development, we were asked this question, what happens if the audience doesn't realize he's lost his memory, right? Because he's not speaking. And if they lose you on that, then you lose the whole plot, right? So what is the natural solution is rather than taking something away from a character, why don't you put a character in that position who never had it to begin with? So the natural solution is you flip it rather than the boy watching his thinking he lost his father. It's a father thinking he lost his son, a son who clearly hasn't learned anything yet because this is his first time coming out on the hunt. And so in that moment, we were like, oh, yeah, there it is. Right. And like we (laughs) this is after many, many drafts of coming up with interesting visual ways of showing that this guy doesn't remember how to do his stuff and that's always it's funny to think back because now it's like so obvious that the it should be the kid <laughs> you know but at the time that wasn't how we were were looking at it yeah feel the the original conception feels a little bit more like the odyssey just a bit more of that kind of yep uh, eternal myth and then this one definitely has more of obviously by being a kid it highlights vulnerability the the need to learn the survival techniques and then you also develop the character to introduce little by little the fact that he might not be up for the task so that the audience has a reason to root for him to be more sympathetic towards him. And it is incredible when you actually look at it, just how easily you tell that story with a very limited number of scenes in those. What essentially you're doing in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film is you convey all of that information to us so that by the time he is lost you know pretty much everything that's at stake and what kind of character you're dealing with so that when you go into this prolonged section with no dialogue, we're still able to follow along. Um, I'm glad. You know, it was it was important also for us that this was a character who didn't want to choose violence and for people to think that that was going to put him at a disadvantage. But naturally, that not necessarily unwillingness, but the lack of desire to do harm is what spares the wolf 
and what ultimately saves his life, right? So I'm really glad that we were able to pull that off. So Christine, could you maybe share a little bit of info about this, the language design itself, how you may have used it to reflect the culture, knowledge, and kind of overall philosophy of the community? Yeah. So the development of the language, um, when I was assigned this, I looked at historical linguistics and what people call proto-languages. So because we are going back to some of the earliest humans, we don't know officially what they spoke. There's the, We can't fossilize a language. And so we look at languages today, and then we estimate languages back in time through creating families. So if we know the Romance language family, which has Spanish and Italian and Portuguese and Romanian and French, we can estimate back what their ancestor language was that eventually created those languages. And you keep doing that. So you find Proto-Romance, and then you go farther back to whatever the connection was there. So Proto-Indo-European, and you go farther back. So these are always guesstimates. We can't know for sure. So I looked at three, and also because it was the Salutrian, there is this idea that Salutrian culture made it to North America via the the land bridges and various ice age times. So I looked at a European version where the film is set, which is Proto-Nostratic, which is a relative of Proto-Indo-European, Proto-Eurasiatic, which is kind of the European-Asian larger family that are dated to around this time period, and then also Proto-Dene-Caucasian. And Caucasian is into Siberia, and then the Dene languages are the family of indigenous languages in North America. So I looked at all of those and they were surprisingly similar <laughs> in terms of the sounds that people thought those languages had. So I took an amalgamation of those sounds and ones that would be easier for, I didn't know who the actors would be at this time, um, except for the actor who plays Zeta, uh, Zeta or Keda, the name changed throughout the, the process. And then I tried to think about what would be easier for English speakers to say. And it has a lot of, it has way more complex sounds than Kryptonian had, for example, um, because that's what Albert wanted. And that was what was true to the historic period. So we have things that are way in the back of your throat. So that your hangy thing is called your uvula. And we have sounds that pull to the back of your throat, like, and, and things like that um, in this language as well as ejective sounds. So things that are like popping sounds, like things like that. So I looked at all of those sounds and tried to make it something that would be easier for the actors to speak, but also what was the historical research. I also looked at the historical research for what people thought the sentence order would be. So one of the things we look at is subject, verb, object, which is the English sentence structure. I saw the apple and rearrange that um, based on what they think is the original sentence structure for that time period. And that was subject, object, verb. Um, and I also included like, English doesn't have this, but if you speak other languages, the verbs are conjugated. So there's something that's added to the end of each verb that tells you who is the speaker um, and and yeah, who's, is it singular or plural or who's, who's speaking at that moment in time? And that's also something they think the languages had because romance languages tend to have that. And then the words were simpler. I also, um, Albert wanted words that sounded pretty. So like Italian or Spanish, 
that had like simple syllable structures, so consonant vowels like um, ka. The word for home in the film is mana. So it's consonant vowel, consonant vowel. Those kinds of things make it sound more musical to the ear. So that's what I looked at to begin with. Yeah, I, I definitely think that worked because as, as I watched the film, the times that I saw it, I remember specifically words like ayya for father just standing out because they get repeated right. a lot. And like you say, they have this kind of musical sound to them. Mm -hmm. And it I guess it this does happen actually when you're watching films. Maybe you're learning a language and you choose to watch cinema from a specific country or you're just interested in watching films in general and you've heard this one's good but you you do tend to pick up a few words just from exposing yourself to it because there's just certain words that are quite simple they're used in a key moment of dialogue and you just kind of pick up on it yeah yeah i always like to test people like how many words do you know okay you watched <laughs> alpha tell me tell me the word for home <laughs> you've got to get it what's the word for what's alpha's name right so yeah uh it was interesting i heard later that aya is actually the Indonesian word for father. Wow. And I had no idea. So people kept saying, oh, it's Indonesian. She she made it Indonesian. And I, I literally don't speak Indonesian. I had no idea that's the Indonesian word for father. So I've I've also heard about this concept, which is the, the Swadesh list, which is the yes. 100 most common words in a language. I've used this when I've been traveling to places like Armenia, where I knew I wasn't going to be able to <laughs> ever learn the language. So it just had this little guidebook with the the hundred keywords written down right did you utilize anything to kind of start your vocabulary list i didn't i tend to because the time period on working with films i mean i use the swadesh word list in my actual academic research when i'm going i've worked in papua new guinea where i've been trying to document a language that hadn't previously had any study of it and they were trying to make a writing system for that language so i used the swadesh word list there just to start getting words but for this because i know the time period is so tight i use whatever the words are that people give me so there were the test scenes they did so i started working on the film in october of 2015 and then we shot test scenes with cody with the language in november and it was those sentences that were in the test scenes that were the first words to be developed. So the word friend, for example, um, I think one of the other ones was patience. You need to have patience and things like that. Or you are my family now. That was my favorite. I can always, that's the first sentence I made, I think. And so it's in my head forever. It's my favorite sentence. It's, oh, oh I'm going to forget it now. Moatami iltinu. Moatami iltinu. Moatami means family and then my. So those are the first ones that I go with rather than doing a Swadesh word list. Although I did really utilize, so even though I looked at the three proto-languages, I utilized a book called The Comprehensive Introduction to Nostradic Comparative Linguistics uh, with a special reference to Indo-European. So it's by a, a linguist named Bamhard, and he has a giant glossary of words that he thinks are nostratic words at the back of that book. So whenever I was going to make a word like family, I would check his list. Does he have a word for family and what is it? And how do I modify that to what this language was? So I use that more than anything. Yeah, and the, re the reason I brought this up is not just because I think people will find it interesting to hear how you did this, but also there are people out there who are working on their own stories and the linguistic elements in fantasy and science fiction 
this is something that I think is common to a lot of writers who are involved in the the world building aspect is to play around with language and enjoy the ideas of, well, if this culture is in some way different, unless it's the 21st century and these characters are just like us, Mm -hmm. you can play around with language and find out about something about maybe the culture or the the map of the world that they have, all of these things, just in terms of the way that the characters express themselves. And I think there's been probably more attention to this following Tolkien's work, because Tolkien was a professor of Anglo-Saxon and created all of his mythologies based around what he felt was the need to create an English mythology, because the the English culture, or at least the Anglo-Saxon part of English culture, a lot of the, the stories were oral and never got written down, and they were kind of lost to history. So Tolkien felt that he would fill that void. And in the scheme of this, he also created languages out of his own enjoyment. He spoke Anglo-Saxon, or at least understood it, and could translate Anglo-Saxon poetry and Beowulf. But he created languages for the orcs, he created languages for the elves, and then that all of the kind of characters that he created, he added names that meant something in those languages. Yes, absolutely. And I think that happened in Alpha 2, if I'm not mistaken, because as you mentioned, this character, the boy, was originally called Zeta, which I suppose has some correlation to the word Alpha, if I'm not mistaken, Dan. Yes. You're, you're showing two opposite sides. We had named all of the characters after Greek letters in, in initial drafts. And Tau, I imagine, that's T, right, in Greek as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so... What you've got here is these character names do mean something in the sense that we talk in biology, that an alpha, as in the alpha in a pack of wolves, is the the dominant member of the group. And so by default, the zeta would be the the weaker member of the group, the one that leads less, right? Well, so I, I do want to interject just, just briefly because if, if I have understood correctly i believe that the alpha dog the alpha wolf theory has actually been debunked in terms of uh packs in the wild but alpha also refers to the first and our alpha was the first the first dog so i just i because i've I've heard you know some people discussing it that you know the the idea of the alpha wolf uh is no longer quite as accepted as it was and it actually was never the the intention to suggest that this was the alpha wolf or not, um, but rather that alpha was was the first in terms of you know the long line of dogs that was to follow. Yeah, that's fascinating because one of the questions I I was thinking about asking Christine as well is just you've got these terms to translate into a language for a culture that doesn't have a writing system yet these terms are based on letters which come from the Greek writing system. So how did you go about just translating the names Alpha and Zeta? Right. So the Zeta, eventually, we realized if everyone is speaking in a different language, Alpha and Zeta are going to stand out. So in my earlier drafts, I just translated them as if they were the names. So I I just was looking back at an old version of mine, and I do have Alpha listed um, there. And then we realized that's not going to work. People are going to uh, get suspicious of that. And so I think I started with Keda was easier because Zeta 
um, sounds like Kada. So I came up with something that would be similar to that character's name. And then for Alpha, the word that I had developed for leader. So in the script, I think it says that is the Alpha, their leader. So the word leader was Daya. Um, and so then we changed Daya to be Alpha as well. So that's how it came to be that particular one. Okay, so in a way, the, your version, Daya, does actually correspond to what Dan was just saying wasn't entirely the intention, yeah. which is that, okay, Daya is the leader of this group. Right, yes. So that's where that's where the idea came from. And then Daya did sound um, a little similar to Alpha, like there's a, a, a relationship between the mm. two, right? I think I, I provided a few different versions to Albert and then he chose the one that he liked the best. So, Yeah, maybe let's talk a bit about the uh, characterization in language. Uh, so, Dan, you're writing dialogue. And mm -hmm. in dialogue, there, this is something we do naturally as we're writing characters. The way that they express themselves can tell you about that character. It can tell you their education level or if they're a more spiritual person or a scientific person or anything like that you can do this in in the dialogue and then in terms of the actual language is there anything that you adapted there christine to create characters for example the way that a father would talk or a leader of a tribe would talk or maybe the way that other tribe members might address the leader you know there's like forms of address and uh kind of hierarchies in certain languages. In English, we kind of use the word sir or your majesty or something to kind of highlight a hierarchy. Right. There wasn't necessarily, but I'm just, they were so, the culture of the people were very much dependent on the, the bison they were hunting. And so this idea of the bison, uh, it was called, and this was not me, this was the script that came to me, that it was the great beast rather than a specific, um, right? It had great attached to it all the time. And so that became something I played on in terms of the ways I described other animals. So it, the word for great beast, or the two words are dura bira is great beast. Um, and so looking at how other animals were then described or, or the way other things were connected. The other thing I did was, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier, William, was that I created dialects for the language. So when the two tribes are coming together, they, um, where the, the leaders of both groups are coming together and you think, oh, maybe there's going to be a standoff and then they're actually friends, then that other tribe coming in has a different, we could call it a regional dialect of the language so that the way they say words are different than how Kedas and uh, tribe would say words. So I changed it there so that you would know if you listen carefully, you can hear the difference um, between how they're saying the word my son, for example, um, which is Sawa in Kada's dialect and Shawa in the other dialect. And these dialects at this point, just to maybe this might be interesting to some people, the idea is that as languages diverge and we end up speaking different dialects, if we don't stay in contact with the the mother language, that's when a new language over time can evolve because you lose the mutual comprehensibility. Yes. And it's something, so for example, British English, Canadian, American English, 
Um, Canadians tend to be more similar to the British. We have this longer connection with our monarchy still mm -hmm. in place, uh, but we have things right where we've shifted, we've been separated. So now we don't say petrol, we say gas or whatever it is. So things, some of the words will change entirely and others are just the way we say things. So instead of saying bottle, I say bottle, right? So just the way that we pronounce certain words, we still understand or new words entirely will come up. One thing I wanted to ask you, Dan, as well as about the linguistic element in alpha, because alpha is a wolf, but mm -hmm. there is certainly communication that goes on on a more instinctual level between Kada and alpha throughout their, their bonding period. Yeah. The idea of utilizing a nonverbal language for, for the wolf, kind of this idea of animism, uh, you know, that, that alpha actually has some intelligence, a kind of soul, whatever you want to attribute to animals that, that I think we're all innately familiar with as modern audiences in that we form very strong connections with our pets. Absolutely. And we certainly ascribe to them personalities that they may or may not actually have. You know, one of the oft-repeated proverbs of writing is that character is action. And from my perspective, I as much as I could, I wanted to understand both of their personalities through the things that they did, right? So as simple as Kata sparing the wolf from finishing it off and choosing instead to pick up this animal reveals so much more about him as a person than anything he could say in that same period of time, right? And the same as I think one of the most important moments for Albert and I was the first time that Alpha and Kata sleep together, you know, that the, the wolf curls up next to him it, and let, or the first time the wolf allows Kata to pet her, I should say, actually, I, I, the, the, although the character Alpha was played by, and may he rest in peace, Chuck, the character is of course, female. But yeah, the 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 nonverbal communication, I mean, that's where you see the love and the love and the bond grow between them. And you know, I actually witnessed it on set, the 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 real nonverbal communication and the bond between, you know, Cody Smith McPhee and Chuck the Czechoslovakian wolf dog really did bond in real life and it was a, an amazing thing to witness. Um and I'm glad that, you know, some of that was reflected in the movie as well. Yeah, for me, I think these are the scenes that I personally, as an audience member, most connected with, because I know you're both uh, proud owners of pets. You, we've been talking about uh, your dog, Dan, and uh, Christine has her cat. And um, I know I'm a reluctant animal lover, and I've had these uh, experiences in my own life where I've formed that bond with with a pet that very similar to Kada and and Alpha just that that feeling of being followed around a little bit mm -hmm. and hey what what are you doing why are you following me around and then within 2 weeks it's suddenly you're inseparable and you've formed this really strong bond with with the animal and uh, i think one of the ways you conveyed it very well in the the screenplay is you the, just this simple little line which is who is training who here is alpha training kada to to feed her or is Kada training Alpha to to um, hunt for him? There's just this sense that actually it's a very mutual kind of experience that 
is done in this kind of non-verbal way just through behavioral training. It's kind of like a, a reward-based system that kind of gets them together initially and then they form this bond. You know, I'll, I, will, I will share an anecdote from the set. You know, I was there for the first week of shooting and we were shooting the moment in which Alpha and Kata are sleeping next to the fire and Kata looks up and he sees the northern lights and then a gust of wind blows the fire out. And we had only just started shooting and somebody from the crew comes to relight, you know, we're, we're going, we're resetting the scene and we're going to, to shoot the scene again. And a member of the crew comes forward to relight the fire. And as the fire is relit, Alpha jumps up and sort of gets into this protective stance around Cody. And it was like a little bit of goosebumps there, right? Because he had really learned that this was somebody he loved or at least needed to be protecting. And just things like that to me are what make what I think is, is, is a very spiritual bond between, uh, you know, humans and, and animals, but especially dogs, you know, whether or not we're adding more weight to it than really exists. Um, it clearly is meaningful to us. And I think that's what really matters. Now that you've mentioned the term spirituality as well, I think I I want to look a little bit more into this in terms of some of the stuff you were doing in this screenplay. I feel that certainly the opening sequences, there's a lot of a kind of uh, circle of life approach to it that we're seeing all the different animals that inhabit Europe in this more pristine condition, the prehistoric condition before the rise of cities and now agriculture where animals really are a powerful force in this landscape and also at times can be a huge danger to humans. There's more of a sense of finding that balance in life between that which kind of gives life and the need to hunt and the need to find food for survival and also the the kind of ever-present danger of the the more powerful predators on the scene. Um, Do you feel that... I, th- I mean, I do think there's certain moments in the, the film, especially where we get a lot of room to just enjoy the seeing a night sky full of stars and seeing just the barren landscapes and, and kind of the world as it, as it was. Yeah. But what was your intention in terms of writing this, this world? How much did you want to explore the, the setting? There are a number of different answers here. On one hand, from a just sheer practical standpoint, I wanted we wanted to make sure that the audience knew what kind of a world we were in, right? From from the get-go, you know, this is a world inhabited by fearsome beasts, right? And and by these strange creatures that that we might not be used to seeing. It also, I think, plays into the idea of loneliness. You know, so much of it is, is you realize how small humans were compared to the earth at the time and how we were really just, you know, now you, you look around and everywhere, it's hard to find a place where there's no evidence of mankind. Then we were lucky to have a little corner of it. You know, that was, that was a big part of it. Also, just to show the great expanse 
right? When when these hunters are going out on their mission, they're they're going walking into the belly of the beast the moment they leave uh, their village. So that was also something very important to just sort of set the tone of like, there's stuff out there, right? And this balance, it kind of ties into the sense of identity for the tribes people in terms of you don't explore or try and lay out too much of what these specific beliefs are, because I think it makes sense to be something a bit more universal. And again, we're looking into such a distant period of the past in which there are no written records or even very few archaeological records to even look back on. And so all of it would be speculative, but there is certainly a sense throughout that Cader uh, and the, the other members of his tribe have this immense understanding of the dangers of nature and have respect for that which is more powerful than them. Maybe I could add that one of the things um, that I included, I one of the lines I got was that characters die, right? So they think um, Kada is dead. And I didn't want to just use die. I didn't want to create that word. And so instead, I would say that there's a metaphor for death that I developed for this culture because they were so much living on the land. So when someone dies, the actual literal translation is they've gone to the other side forest, the forest on the other side, rather than just dying. So even within their idea of how I developed the language to talk about death, it's related to the landscape and that there's this other forest we could be in when we die. I love that. Yeah, and that, that's something that's still relevant today, that the idea of a heaven and hell, this is a linguistic inheritance. If we didn't have words to convey heaven and hell, maybe we wouldn't think of it in terms of there are two options for you when you die. It's it's uh, a much more universal feeling of perhaps more similar to cultures such as the Japanese, where you, you have more of a sense that your ancestors kind of remain um, watching over you. Yeah, exactly. You can even look back, you know, this this film is meant to take place about 20,000 years ago. But, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Lion Man statue. It was a, a, a small sculpture found in Germany mm -hmm. uh, that dates back to, you know, about 35,000, 40,000 years ago. And it is, you know, it, it's figurative art. It is a half lion, half man statue. And when you see evidence of things like this, you know, of course, I don't want to assume anyone's spirituality, but you can certainly assume that there was certain amount of creativity being applied to, you know, what else is out there. And I can, you can, if you put yourselves in the shoes of these, of these people as best you can, and, and there are these, the incredible unknown, I, I wanted to try and treat it with as much sort of respect for the mysticism as opposed to cynicism uh, where I could. So, Yeah, that is something that, if you haven't looked this up, this is one of the most fascinating cultural artifacts of prehistory is the, the Lion Man statue. It is fascinating because it gives us this insight into what early religion may have been like, but also ties into this idea that we discussed early on in the podcast, which is that there is a modernness to humanity in the prehistorical period, that there are certain... There's kind of a map almost in our psychology that has this openness to spirituality and religion 
and the ideas of a connection with nature. Obviously, in all of our different cultures, we've we've come up with different answers over the course of of time and and everything like that. But even in the prehistoric period, there is a sense of just man finding or mankind finding its place amongst nature and those elements of nature that are more powerful it could be we see this in the the religions that have multiple gods as well you know the the respect for storms or for earthquakes or for natural phenomena as well as the actual animals such as the bears or the much larger and much more dangerous beasts that inhabit our world I think this does, you know, as a writer, I think it's such an exciting prospect, isn't it? To be able to to explore a world in which you can be very, very imaginative, but also find parallels that you think will excite the audience that, that kind of connect with their modern experience as well. Absolutely. Maybe we could talk a little bit now as well about some of the scenes that didn't make it into the final screenplay, because... I've I've read the screenplay of Alpha that has I think something like twenty odd scenes in the first twenty pages had to be taken out and you've already got a long enough film you tell a very concise story but what kind of ideas did you have in those those early pages that were more scene setting that unfortunately couldn't make it into the film Sure well one of the things um, just to note that. Sometimes if you have moved scenes, it can appear as if it's been omitted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because the numbers don't change. So that had some impact on it. the, The one thing that I remember us sort of getting rid of is we had sort of a running... There is a lot of discussion about when Cro-Magnon and Neanderthals existed at the same time. Right. And the 20,000 years ago is, if I remember correctly, and and there are many people who know much more than me that might listen to this and get annoyed with me. So I already am so sorry. Um, But if what I recall from our research is that this was around the time when Neanderthals were disappearing. And, you know, yes, they may have still been there. They may not have still been there. And we had toyed with the idea of this sort of small tribe of Neanderthals that our Cro-Magnon sort of come into contact with a couple of times over the course of the story and whether or not it was never like a full antagonist sort of scenario, but we wanted to at least tease the possibility that there were these other people out there. So the Neanderthals we removed uh, because I believe I can't speak to why we got rid of them, but that was one sort of series of scenes uh, that were in there that then were no longer there. Um, another thing is that in the final cut of the film, we open on the the bison hunt, and then we flash back. the script The original script did not open in media res. We began with the moments of the different animals and creatures and the landscape, and then went right into the click-clack clicking of the flint-napping scene of the the boys creating the spearheads. Uh, So some of those moving scenes around in order to give us, launching us right into the action and then flashing back, I'm sure also um, shifted some things around in that process. 
Yeah, I've, I've also heard the saying that a film is actually written three times and you have your screenplay, then you have shooting, and then you have editing. So there's always a chance that the story, oh, yeah. the actual chronology the, or the, the order in which we are following the events can get shifted around just by an editor who feels that it would make more sense to open with this set piece. And even still, the storyline remains the same that we can follow I think based on the, the screenplay, it's just that it opens with this big set piece and then it flashes back to a week earlier and says, okay, this is how we got to this place. Right. It's interesting you mentioned the Neanderthals, Dan, because I actually did create an entire Neanderthal language. Uh, well, not, it wasn't, it was just glimpses of it. It wasn't as much as the Bayama language that Cato speaks. But um, when I first got the script and I saw in there that it said Neanderthals were grunting, I was like, no, no. The research shows that if they are overlapping, they at least have a language, even if it's not as developed as Cro-Magnon's language at this point. So we have to have a language if ne these Neanderthals are staying. So I did develop that and it sounded very different. There were more consonant clusters and um, because the idea is that Neanderthals were in colder areas, but also the shape of their face is different. So they have wider nasal cavities. Uh, so there were more nasal sounds and less vowels than the consonant vowel kind of pretty language of the Bayama speakers. Amazing. Yeah, that was a fun sort of subplot to the to the story that, you know, you can't always get to tell the whole story you wanted to, but, um, you know. And then there's also the Huntress. Oh, you oh, didn't mention goodness. her, but if you want to talk about the Huntress and how she no longer appeared, but I also made a language for the Huntress and her people. I, how could I? How could I forget? Yes. So there's a whole bit in the second half of the film in which Kata discovers the bow and arrow mm -hmm. in the the frozen hut. Right. We had a different sequence of events initially. Kata is very sick and in this sort of um, it's actually, it's a scene that appears in one of the first trailers. Mm -hmm. So I've had people ask me about it because it doesn't appear in the movie, but there was a moment in which uh, Kata is very sick and it's, you know, late in the, in the movie, he's sick. He's wandering through the woods. He, we don't know if he's going to make it because he hasn't been able to eat. And he has this sort of, it, it is a, almost like a fever dream experience in which this group of this all female group of huntresses appear out of the snow and with their bows and arrows drawn. And uh, Kata has the wolf stand down and one of the huntresses leaves the bow and arrow for him. In another version of the script, he sees the bow and arrow and then tries to replicate it and builds it. Yeah, I I think that's the version I I got. Yeah, that Amazing. that he he has this dream or real experience, depending on how you interpret it, and then just learns how to create a bow himself using his ingenuity. Right. Yeah. So we we tried a, a bunch of different versions. You know, one because one of the things Albert and I wanted also was to show that not every tribe looked like we think they looked in terms of sending the men out to hunt and the women, you know, stayed home. Or in fact, we had a female huntress in the the hunting group of of mm -hmm. Tao's tribe as well. Um, but we wanted to try and show, like, oh, this is another way in which these the, a different culture has evolved and, and shown. Um, and again, I don't necessarily remember why that no longer made the final cut. 
but yeah, that they were out there. Although it, I will say it does take away a bit from the central thesis of loneliness if you have other people out there, right? Um, it can sometimes, which is why I think our final version did become quite effective in that he thinks he's found someone else out there, but they are in fact dead and frozen. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is definitely more true to the the central theme and thesis of the story. Yeah, because I think that also ties into the idea that the story becomes Kada facing an ever-increasing number of obstacles and the the danger level grow. I mean, it already starts in quite a, a, a high level of danger with him hanging off the side of a cliff with absolutely no way down. But this continuous barrage of different obstacles and different threats and then when he finally thinks he has found another life form another human being out there that actually it's a corpse and it it kind of i don't know if this was intentional or not but it, it ties into one of the few remains that we have of people from the prehistoric eras is otzi the Iceman, who was found in uh, the mountains of uh of Tyrol between Austria and Italy and is of course a, a huge draw to this day to, to see his mummified body because he was preserved perfectly in the ice and there's there's kind of a little bit of a, a link there with this man who who uh, Kader finds out there just frozen in the ice because it it leads to this very eerie sense of preservation that because the the body is frozen it's not it's not some someone's remains, but actually they look just mm-hmm. as they did the moment before they died. Right. There was also now it's this is all jogging my memory. You know, this was naturally, you know, five or six years ago that some of this stuff was written. But there was also a, a big set piece that we got rid of was when, <laughs> you know, because some people ask, wait a second, how in the world did this kid survive the fall from the cliff? and in the initial drafts there was actually this big flood that was (laughs) crashing along down at the bottom of the cliff and when Kata finally lets go we had a whole set piece of him landing in the water and being carried away down in this flood and like these other animals in the flood with him Um, which on paper you know one of the things as a writer you want to you know let your imagination sprawl but at a certain point in time, someone comes to you and is like, listen, uh, that scene is very expensive. So let's maybe find another solution. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, that, that definitely may have been one of the cut scenes because I, I remember uh, that being in a lot of the early drafts that we finally had to say, okay, um, that scene alone is, uh, is, can be quite a, a, a task. Yeah, there's a, there's such a delicate balance where, as you mentioned earlier, the character is action. Character is how an individual responds underneath the pressure and the deeds they do, the things they do in order to overcome the obstacles in front of them. But also you do want to convey a bit of the sense that Kader is very much not entirely helpless, but he's going to be at the mercy of the elements and these elements or the predators in the environment could wipe him out very very quickly so you had to find a, a balance throughout the story where you would allow some parts of it to be left to chance the chance intervention of alpha for example at, at a later point but also 
a lot of it needs to be driven by Kader's final kind of realization that some of the things his father has been telling him are not because his father just wants to bully him and make him be a man or anything like that, but actually he knows just how important having this strong sense of bravery is for his his son's survival that he needs to be willing to take some some big risks such as setting his his ankle back in place when he breaks it that that's such a difficult scene to watch because i think we've all like at some point in our lives felt that way that i've i've dislocated my shoulder for example just that feeling of oh god something's gone horribly wrong with my body and (laughs) i've got to put it back in it's just it's uh it's a very tough one to watch just you get a bit squeamish i think watching it one thing i wanted to ask about as well is uh this red ochre that the characters are using throughout um so i think when when tao believes that kader is is fully lost he he blows this red ochre out into the wind and i was wondering just where you got the idea of the the usage of red ochre and what it would symbolize to the characters Yeah, so we knew that a lot of the early European modern humans were using ochre crayons uh, to decorate their bodies. Um, And we found ochre, different colored ochre in these sort of, in the the remains and and things that people have found. The actual blowing of, of the ochre, I actually think that may have been Albert's idea, but we were... I think he had seen sort of the visual uh, potential behind it, right? And and so I think we were just trying to to come up with different ways in which we could show their sort of artistic and spiritual sides, um, again without dialogue, right? And and there felt like something really beautiful in in the sort of blowing of this this colored dust. Not only did it in in the the basest way sort of looks really cool uh which feels silly to say but like ultimately we are you know it's a visual medium right um but also it it seemed to really hold this sort of nice you know from dust to dust element to it but yeah i i i remember a lot of conversations with albert about the ochre and the different ways in which we could use it because it is this sort of very unique thing that I had never heard of or, or seen in other things I had read or watched uh, until Albert introduced me to this idea. And I think it's really cool. So in terms of visuals, then, do you, I mean, I think Albert has this very, very powerful visual mind. There's, there's certain moments, transitions in the film where, for example, there's maybe the setting sun changing into a campfire or the stars and just just this beautiful kind of alignment of overlaying one image on top of another for a transition that that creates kind of a more of a sense that things are connected and just visually looks very very stunning but as a writer do you think you're more of a a writer who gets into the emotional side of the characters do you think visually do you think in terms of narrative what just how do you kind of consider yourself as a writer um, well, I would say in general, my strengths come into the emotion of it all. Um, one of the great benefits, however, of having written this under the tutelage of Albert Hughes is he really drilled a lot of the visual stuff into me. Um, you know, I so I would say sort of from 
from the get-go, the delving into the emotions and uh, these these ideas of sort of survival and overcoming impossible odds are things I love to sort of drill in on. Um, but it was Albert really taught me to look at the transitions, especially it's funny that you mentioned them because the, I remember a lot of conversations with him in which he was really teaching me, you know, um, he would say things like, you got to give me a way to get from this scene to that scene, which isn't something I had really ever paid attention to when I was reading the scripts. But he had, you know, a lot of great ideas in terms of of how to use those. And and we definitely had a, a great deal of collaboration in terms of coming up with creative ways of of getting us from one to the other. And now I definitely think about them a lot more um, thanks to him and, and thanks to all the things that he taught me. Great. So I'm go now going to ask Christine, what did you learn during the process of uh, creating this language for Alpha that you wish you'd known at the start? So for the language in Alpha, it was one that has the most spoken lines uh, out of all of the movies that I've worked on. And so I didn't realize because when I worked on Man of Steel, I worked with the art department, as I said, and I didn't. And in the Power Rangers, I was working on it at the same time as working on Alpha, and they didn't include the lines in the script. And so when I worked on Alpha, I had to. I had already developed the way of giving the information to the actors, and that was um, through using the International Phonetic Alphabet, which is an alphabet all linguists use to write any language in mm -hmm. the world. It's got a symbol for every sound that a human has made or a way to adapt a symbol. So I had trained them all to read the International Phonetic Alphabet. And I also worked with them over Skype at that time to train them. I would give them recordings. Um, one thing that you may not know as well is that I, to make sure the language sounded authentic, I would highlight the syllable of the word that they should stress. So that it would be consistent across all the actors that were going to say that word, they would say it durabira instead of durabira. Mm -hmm. um, so making sure that it was all the same for every actor. And so that was something I did here that I hadn't done previously. But then, um, as you see in the screenplay, the, they did include the language in the script and they wanted to have that. And so... Unfortunately, and this is something people should know who are writing screenplays, that the program is Final Draft that you all use, right? Yeah. To write screen. Yeah. yeah. That does not take any symbols that are not a part of the, the English alphabet. So I had used so many symbols that were unusual that could not fit into there. And so I had to create a whole different way to write the language that then confused the heck out of the actor. So if you gave the actor the script that had the weird version of writing, that's not how they learned it. And they they um, didn't like that. They wanted to have the original that I gave them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it, I tried, it was, everybody was already using Final Draft and that's just what's used. And so I really wish they would do an update so it would take unusual symbols. But um, I did learn, okay, if I'm ever going to do this again, I need to not have the IPA, uh, the International Phonetic Alphabet, as my base that I give to actors. I need to train them in the way it's going to be in the script to begin with. Um, so that was something I learned as a language creator. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's a. I mean, that is a real shame that Final Draft can't uh, can't convey those symbols. I mean, I've I've certainly used the IPA myself in in learning 
other languages like Spanish. It's just a very, very useful thing to have. Yeah. Also, when you look up dictionary definitions of a word that you might not know how to pronounce, you can often find the IPA there if you if you're looking at that in in a good dictionary. Just yes. to to know exactly how it's meant to be pronounced is uh, is a very good skill to have. So I'm sure those actors are all <laughs> taking advantage of that now. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and so, Dan, I also have the same question for you. What was one thing you learned during the writing of Alpha that you wish you had known at the start? One thing? Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, I, I think it, it's a very difficult question to answer because the, the, the process of writing Alpha is what gave me a career as a screenwriter. So in, in many ways, I want to say, nothing because without that learning process, I wouldn't be where I am now. And all of it was valuable to me. With that said, mm -hmm. it's, it's so difficult. I, I think truly my, my answer is I'm learning. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought I had a very good answer for you on this. And, and the more I think about it, the more I realize I don't. Um, that that is why I love ask, asking this question because I feel that it always uh, it always it always really challenges us to think back on everything that that happened in the entire process and just yeah just this sense that actually every project is different every every single big task we take on we don't know how it's going to end up when we embark on the journey but the journey itself is is always so valuable to to each of us. absolutely i would say if, if if i had to really distill it and be pragmatic about it it is how vitally important the the process of outlining and preparing is because I was so early in my writing career while writing this, a lot of the stuff I was learning sort of on the go as I was figuring it out. And I probably could have saved myself a lot of time had I had an even more thorough outline before embarking on the actual writing of the script. Um, a lot of times it's very tempting to, you know, you have certain cornerstones and you have certain scenes and you kind of know your beginning, middle and end. And you're like, okay, okay, it's time to go write. But um, yeah, preparation, how, how important that preparation is before sort of embarking into the wilderness is will, will save you a lot, of, a lot of stress down the line, for sure. That is a really great takeaway. Um, I've certainly been doing a bit more of that myself in, in my own writing is since uh, more, more and more people that I talk to highlight the need for a good outline right from the beginning. Yeah. And again, it, it also challenges that that myth that writers are just fully formed, they know exactly what they're doing, and they just do this magic process of writing everything out onto a page in, in some sort of trance. Actually, the screenplays, I think, are one of the aspects of, of writing narratives where more attention is put onto structure and outlines because of the the constant shifting and changing of stories, the the need, oh, can we take this scene out? Can we put it later? What what would happen if we do this? And if you have a nice broad outline, you can always justify why something is needed at a certain point. Or you can also challenge yourself and say, well, look, I really love this idea, but does it really serve the story? Does it does it really need to make it into the final version? Right. Well, 
I think that is every question I had for both of you. So I would just like to say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation. And I'm sure that everyone who listens to it will gain a lot of ideas and inspiration for their own writing and also will gain new insights the next time that they watch Alpha. They'll be able to notice some of the things that you've mentioned that perhaps they didn't see the first time around. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, it was a real pleasure. And Christine, such a joy to finally speak to you. You as well. Yes, it's great hearing about more of the backstory of the script and the screenplay. (laughs) 